Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, June 23rd, 2014. Had an excellent time in Montana. Just a fantastic conference. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there's no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, open up our Bibles, and see if what many of the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, authors, uh, you know, people like that who are who we're told we really need to be listening to, if what they're telling us actually squares with what God's Word says in context. Or if, well, they're twisting God's word and scratching itching ears in order to make merchandise of uh, Christ's sheep. Yeah, things like that. And unfortunately, that making merchandise of Christ's sheep uh, could cause you to lose more than just money in your wallet. You know, it's, uh, false doctrine has a tendency to send people to hell, especially if you're believing in a false gospel. So uh, we're trying to uh, save you all kinds of eternal uh, heartache, grief, weeping, and gnashing of teeth, stuff like that. That's what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. Now, like I said at the opening of the program, uh, the, the Reformation Montana conference, that was just stellar, absolutely stellar. I was at the Issues Etc. conference prior to that. That was stellar, too. And the one thing that I have that, that both of the conferences had in common, at least from my experiences, that I wasn't able to stick around for the entire thing, and I was a little bit bummed in both cases um, at uh, Issues Etc. I had to uh, leave on Saturday afternoon. Uh, in order to uh, be installed as the pastor of Kongsvinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota, and uh, and you know, I was installed the next day. Get, getting back, by the way, was a little bit of a challenge. The uh, there was thunderstorms in uh, Minneapolis on that Saturday night, and uh, and I couldn't get actually couldn't back get back to Grand Forks, North Dakota. I had to fly into Fargo, and didn't even get home until well, roughly two in the morning the the same day I was installed. So uh, if you uh, Saw photographs of me during my installation, and I looked a little tired or bleary-eyed. I I don't know if I did or not. Uh, that explains that. So I wasn't able to stay for the entire Issues Etc. conference. And then uh, Jordan Hall, uh, he uh, invited me to uh, speak second year in a row at the uh, Reformation Montana conference. Again, just a fantastic conference. Great group of people. 
and it was a pleasure to meet some of you listeners out there. And uh, I couldn't stay for the whole thing again. And the reason why I couldn't stay for the whole thing is because, well, having been installed as the pastor of Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, I am of the opinion it would have been bad form to say, thanks for installing me. I'm out of here. I've got to go speak at a conference and uh, you need to find somebody to fill in for me. <laughs> yeah, that would have been bad. So, uh, you know, I, uh, I let Jordan know that uh, I will not be missing a Sunday, at least for a long time at uh, Kongsvinger and so they you know they he had me speaking on Thursday Friday and uh, and then my wife and I we uh, hit the road on on Saturday so we missed the last day of the conference so you know I'm bummed about that but I, I have I have it on good authority that I'll be rece- be able to get audio of uh, the uh, lectures that I missed so I'm I'm looking forward to uh, to getting that and I have it on good authority that uh, I should be getting uh, audio of my lectures uh, I, I two in particular that I gave. Uh, one on the fact that the Bible is about Jesus, you know, it's kind of talking about uh, talking against me-centered Narsa Jesus, one of the major themes we have here, and uh, and then my lecture on the Misty Chicks, uh, it, it really kind of focusing in more on Beth Moore uh, rather than uh, anybody else. But uh, I have it on good authority that I should be receiving that audio, and with uh, you know with that. Uh, you should be able to hear it. I, I hope to be able to play those uh, segments on Thursday and Friday of this week at uh, Fighting for the Faith. Stay tuned. We'll see if uh, if we get usable audio. I'm hoping that we do uh, because this week um, I have to uh, travel again to Minneapolis, Minnesota uh, in order to uh, th- this time participate in the AALC's uh, convention that they have every like three, four years. Uh, we're going to be picking a new presiding pastor and taking care of church business and this will be my first time attending such an event. So uh, this will be an augmented broadcast week again. And, and of course, hopefully I prepared you all for this uh, for this fact. But uh, Lord willing, uh, if the audio is good and I get it on time, uh, you should I should be able to have a Thursday, Friday of this week be uh, my audio from the uh, Reformation Montana lecture. So. Stay tuned. We'll see if uh, if uh, we were able to get that and the audio is usable. I'm kind of, you know, saying a prayer here at this point uh, that 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 happens. And uh, with that, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, we have a few things that we're going to be covering here today. A few things that we're going to be covering. In fact, let me uh, pull up my uh, thing. Okay, so so have you all heard of this? Uh, this movie that's supposed to be premiering in the fall called Holy Ghost. Um, <laughs> I uh, somebody on my Facebook wall sent me a link to uh, one of the kind of the preview videos that they put out in advance of the release of this movie. Now apparently there's I think a screening for it online in August, and then it, it, the movie itself is going to premiere in September. And <laughs> what I'm seeing. Uh, on the videos leading up to it makes me think, what is this? Who's putting this out? And, uh, you know, which Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost are they referring to? The, the biblical one? Um, yeah, so uh, we'll kind of give you a little bit of an update of, of, of some of the videos that are being put out there regarding the Holy Ghost movie coming out. Um, and then we will switch gears. We have a Kevin Gerald update. We have an extended Keith Craft update. Uh, yeah, we're going to be listening to a portion of a message from Keith Kraft uh, entitled, Your Think Be Do for value ab- Valuable Life. For a <laughs> Your Think Be Do for a Valuable Life. You know, that's the name of it. So we'll 
Uh, we've we've got that. And then in hour number two, we're going to head to Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And we're not going to be listening to a Stephen Furtick sermon. We're going to be listening to a sermon from one of their campus pastors. And a prime example of biblical narcissism. Yeah. Um, it, you, you, well, this, <laughs> during the summertime, it seems like summertime on, in the uh, seeker-driven liturgical calendar is one of two things. Time to whip out the, uh, the understudy pastors and give them a crack at preaching so that someday they can, be, uh, they can grow up and become visionary leaders themselves, uh, which gives you an idea of what's coming down the pike, or you've got to preach on the movies. And uh, so I think tomorrow we're going to be doing a, a movie-based sermon review um, I forget the name of the movie. It's from the latest Tom Cruise movie. I, don't know, I forget the name of it. Although I was tempted to do the uh, movie ser- a, a movie sermon on uh, How to Train Your Dragon 2. <laughs> You're sitting there going, really? There's people out there preaching this stuff? Yes. Yes. Apparently God's word, yeah, not good enough. Not good enough for churches nowadays. You know, we have to preach from uh, movies. So that's going to be how we uh, round out today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're gonna, the movie sermon is tomorrow, not today. But uh, that's what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And um, since I didn't know how to classify, and I, and I mean that in, in the truest sense, I did not know how to classify uh, an update regarding the Holy Ghost movie. So... Based upon what I heard um, and what it is you're going to hear, I had to guess. I, I had to guess into kind of like into what generic bucket uh, this Holy Ghost movie is supposedly going to fit into. And I couldn't tell if it was going to be like Cindy Jacobs, Patricia King. But then after listening to a couple of these um, preview interviews of people who were featured in the Holy Ghost movie... I had to, well, settle on this. Yeah, listen in. Yeah, that's right. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra. Yeah, that's Doug Padgett uh, conducting there. As you can see, they're not exactly orthodox. They've just—they're just being led by the spirit here. They don't want to be limited by you know modernist definitions of notes and music and things like that. Brings tears to my eyes every time I hear it. Okay, so what we're going to be listening to, a couple of the preview videos for the new Holy Ghost movie that's supposed to come out, um, I think, September 6th, some sometime there. And I think online they're saying that they have, they're have going to have some kind of a premiere in the month of August. But who we're going to be listening to is a gentleman by the name of Aaron Nyquist. Nyquist, yeah. And uh, he is one of the worship leaders at Willow Creek in uh, Barrington, Illinois. Yeah, Willow Creek. Uh, 
kind of an, one of those important flagship um, churches. You, you get what I'm saying here? Uh, he works with Bill Hybels. And what we're going to hear here sounds like the kind of stuff that you'd expect to hear from, you know, somebody like Tony Jones, Doug Padgett, Brian McLaren, you know, the emergent guys. Um, yeah, here's Aaron uh, Nyquist, Nyquist to tell us about um, what he believes regarding the Holy Ghost. And he's going to be featured in the upcoming Holy Ghost movie. Here we go. Yeah, I by no means um, believe that Christianity completely owns God. Mm-hmm. You see, if somebody makes a statement like that, and I think theological doofus. <laughs> that's not very nice, is it? Yeah, it, listen, Christianity doesn't own God. Uh, that, that's ridiculous. Christ owns Christianity. You see the big difference. You, you heard of Christ, Christianity. Yeah, because only Christianity worships the one true God the way he wants to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And, you know, Jesus says that no one comes to the Father except for through me. And there's no other name given under heaven and earth by which men must be saved than Jesus. In other words, all other religions, every single one of them, they're false religions, and the people who are in them are idolaters, and they aren't worshiping the true God. So here you got uh, this you know, worship leader from Bill Hybels' church saying that Christianity doesn't own God. That's just silly. It's emergent. It's irrational. It shows that you don't know your Bible, and you probably don't know Orthodox Christianity either. But we continue. That the only way that God can do anything is through the Christian organized religion. Mm-hmm. That the only way God can do anything is through the Christian organized religion. So God can work through the pagan unorganized religions? Is that what you're saying? And which biblical passages would you point me to in order to back up this theological assertion of yours? This, You see, listen, just because somebody's had a theological thought, you know, hey, I think I thunk a theological thought. Um, just because you think you thunk a theological thought doesn't mean that your theological thought is worth passing along to anybody or that it even really rises to the level of sound biblical doctrine. In fact, if it's sound biblical doctrine, it's going to be revealed in the written word of God, and we don't need your theological thinking in order to get to it. You see what I'm saying? Um, I, I think that God is constantly creating and inspiring and launching. And I think- yeah, God's creating, inspiring, and launching. Wow. I'm glad you think that about God. Um, um, but you probably shouldn't share that with anybody because the Bible doesn't say anything about that, does it? Christianity is a lot of very helpful ways that we can be more open. Uh, so Christianity is just one of those helpful ways that we can be more open. That we can listen. I mean, how many times... Just listen, yeah. What does any of this nonsense mean? This guy doesn't even believe, teach, or confess the historic Orthodox Christian faith, the biblical faith at all. This is emergent gobbledygook. Jesus talk about for those who have ears to hear. It's like this sense that God is constantly talking to every one of us. Yeah, including those of us in Islam or those of us in, you know, Hinduism or those of us in other religions. Right. So God's really, what's he saying to those people in those other religions? Um, all of God's sons and daughters on this planet. Uh-huh. Yeah, this 
You think this guy's into universalism? He's a worship leader at Bill Hybels' Willow Creek Church. The guy's a flat-out pagan. And the question is, do we have ears to hear? Yeah, the question is, do we have ears to hear? The question is, are, do you have any ears to hear what God has written and revealed in his word? Clearly, you've cut yourself off from what God has said. God, the Holy Spirit, has said in the written word of God. Yeah, we've got major problems there. What do you think? Okay, we're not going to quite move along yet. Now, do you know who the singer-songwriter Jake Hamilton is? I don't know who he is. I honestly couldn't tell you. Um, so, you know, he also is featured in the upcoming Holy Ghost movie and in the videos that they've been putting out. And in what you're about to hear, he is in, well, India um, at a pagan Hindu temple. And the things he says in, you know, outside of this temple just make me go... Have you read your Bible? You know what? We're in fact, we're going to take a look at like Acts chapter seventeen. If you want to get your Bible out and take a look at Acts chapter seventeen with me, we'll do that as counterpoint to what it is that we're hearing here. But um, you know, here, listen in. All right. So, where are we? What are we doing? This is the tallest temple in all of India for Shiva. It's like two hundred. 52 feet tall, and um, inside is multiple images of the goddess, or the god Shiva. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in other words, pagan temple to a false god, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And Shiva is the god um, that established the city of Varanasi, and um, uh, the oldest city, inhabited city in the world. 5,000 years old is this city. It's kind of just nuts. I think... Uh, it's just crazy. I guess I'm, I'm walking through there singing and wondering, like, what does love look like to... Because you're not just in a city that is mostly Hindu. You're in, like, the birthplace of, like, Hinduism. So you're kind of in a different realm. And I really am processing what love looks like. like you're processing what love looks like. What does that sentence even mean? I'm... I'm outside this Hindu temple that was built to Shiva, and I'm here looking at these people worshiping this false deity. And and lo lo and behold, we got video footage of the false deity itself. Um, And you're sitting here saying, I'm having a hard time processing what love looks like. Um, okay, let's listen a little bit more to him processing to see if let's see if he actually ever f- is able to process what does love look like in this context. You go and just start preaching to a bunch of people who don't know anything different. Like, what is that? I just I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. Maybe it just sounds immature. I'm not sure, but it's like in reality, it's like they're recording me. It's like, what does love look like to this place? Like, mm-hmm. What does love look like to this place? Okay, let me give you a biblical answer of what love looks like to this place. I'm, I'm assuming that you're, you're sitting there, that, that the question has something to do with me as a Christian. What do I do in this situation to share the love of Jesus? Let's just put the best construction on it as best as we can. Although the question itself is it kind of sounds almost as worthless as the statements made by that worship leader from Willow Creek. But uh, here's what happens in the book of Acts, okay? Paul, the Apostle Paul, you've heard of him? Yeah, this is a guy who actually 
had an encounter with the risen Jesus. He was a Pharisee. He was killing Christians and persecuting them, was on his way to Damascus to round them up and, and you know basically put them under arrest for believing in Jesus. You familiar with this guy? So he met Jesus and he was baptized. His sins were washed away. He, w- he was basically called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so uh, he's on one of his missionary journeys, and uh, things didn't go so well for him in Thessalonica, so he went to Berea. We're in Acts chapter 17. Um, in fact, we'll, we'll kind of take a look at uh, that before we get to the Athens uh, text. So you can kind of see what's going on here. Acts chapter 17, verse 10. Here's what it says. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Yeah, from Thessalonica. Things didn't go so well there. And they they arrived there. They went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And uh, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also. So they came there to agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Ah, kind of like modern-day India, full of idols, right? So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said that some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. No, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all of mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and we have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed God's offspring. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And the times of ignorance God overlooked in the past, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Now, you'll notice here, what does love look like in a pagan town full of man-made idols and false deities? Love looks like this, confronting them with their false notion regarding their idols and going back to the fact that God is the one who has created us and doesn't need us to serve him in this way. Instead, he's overlooked the ignorance in the past, and he's now calling all idolaters, including Hindu idolaters, to repent. And to be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ, by his death and his resurrection. This is what Paul preached. That's what love looks like, right? But apparently uh, Jake Hamilton here um, is having a tough time. What does love look like? Uh, what does love look like? I'm, I'm trying to process this. Uh, he's, he's trying to figure this out in front of the temple of Shiva in India. What does love look like? What's the sound of love? What's the physical manifestation of love? The lo yeah, the sound of love is repent and believe in the one who was crucified and raised from the dead for your sins and for your salvation. That's what love looks like and sounds like in an idol-worshipping town like this one in India. Love of Jesus, how to honor the heart of a person and the culture, and yet embrace somebody at the same time into what love really looks like. And so, uh -huh. Embrace somebody into what, what love really looks like. What has happened to Christianity? I mean, seriously. This is like, this is just simple first commandment stuff. You will have no other gods before me, and yet you have a Christian standing outside of a Hindu temple just, just having a difficult time processing what love looks like in this context. <laughs> Read your Bible. Yeah, maybe Acts 17 would be the place to start. And you'll know exactly what it is that love looks like and sounds like in a pagan, idolatrous context like that. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we've got a, uh, well, a, a Keith Craft update, as well as an update from uh, Kevin Gerald on verbal prisons. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> presents Church Day Select.
Captain! An enemy vessel off the starboard bow! What colors are they flying? They're flying the code orange flag! It's the SSF Audacity! This is our chance, men! This egregious foe has been plaguing the seas for long enough! Two arms! Man the battle stations and hoist the colors! Aye, aye, sir. Man the battle stations and hoist the colors. Captain Fernick, sir. Enemy ship approaching. They're flying the accursed Cairo flag. It's the HMS Aletheia. Oh, dear, that's bad news. We mustn't let them get the better of us. Call out the praise band drummer and man battle stations. Aye, aye, sir. You heard the man. Get to work. Come on, let's get going. The enemy's not going to wait for us. Put your back to you and I. Come on, get some fire. And we're out. No warning or complaint. Come on, let's get going. Go, go, go. Captain, sir, they're turning to meet us. With this clear weather, we couldn't have had the element of surprise. Well, no matter. We have the wind on our side, and our men are ready. We should be pulling up alongside them any minute now. Give me a status report! Sir, the enemy ship has us outgunned by at least three to one. The gunner's mates are reporting that we're running low on gunpowder, and half the crew is suffering from Montezuma's revenge. Never fear, my good man, for it says that with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. If you say so, Captain Furnick. They're now within firing range, Captain. Mr. Smithers, send them a... Hang on, let me do this myself. Send them a warning shot off of their port bow. Fire the cannons, sir! That was merely a warning shot, Captain. They could have very well have hit us. I think they wish for us to surrender to avoid bloodshed. Nonsense! You think we would surrender in an hour of triumph? God has clearly stated that no weapon formed against you will prosper. We can't lose! Let loose the cannons! But, but we're not within silence! If I wanted your opinion, I'd have given it to you. I'd say, fire! I've never seen a warning shot where they used all their cannons before. The blasted fool shot before he was in range. I can only assume that he means to not surrender. Quickly fire a barrage into the port side while they reload. Aye, aye, sir. Fire the cannons! Ha! You call that an attack? I have God on my side. He said this to me, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. Why, why aren't we firing our cannons? We've now lost half our cannons due to the last attack. Come on, men. We can't lose. Aye, aye, sir. Are they even trying anymore? By all accounts, I believe they are. Let's pull up alongside and see if we can't reason with them. It would be bad form to slaughter them without mercy.
over there. Go away. We have nothing to say to you. I wanted to negotiate the terms of your surrender. My surrender? Ha! It is you who will be surrendering to us. What on earth is he talking about, Captain? Maybe he's suffering from malnutrition and heat stroke? No, I, I think he's serious. Now look here. You're outgunned with no way of winning. We wish to show you mercy. No weapon formed against us will prosper. Why is he quoting the Bible? No, a quote would require a context. What he's done is called proof texting. Enough talk, men. Ready, aim, fight! What was that? I couldn't hear you over the sound of your mass being demolished. But, but, uh, no! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Oh, would you look at that? Your rudder is gone, too. <clears throat> It'll be a little difficult for you to sail without it, don't you think? I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Is it me? Or is your ship now sinking? Nah, maybe it is me. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If it's all the same to you, I think we've lost this fight. I'm surrendering. Geronimo! Satan's with you. I can't take another minute with this lunatic. Stop it! Stop it right now! All of you come back. We, we, we can't lose. We have... God on our side! We shall prevail! We will... Well, that was surprisingly easy! Makes me wonder how they were even viewed as a threat in the first place. Most inept sailors to ever sail the seven seas. Pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Roseborough here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your favorite positive motivational speaker type pastor dude who has you say affirmations and thinks that you can create your uh, future with your words. 
Uh, just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. I want to talk about me, want to talk about I, want to talk about number one. Oh, my, me, my, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. That's right. I want to talk about me. That's uh, some new music we put into the mix here at Fighting for the Faith. Uh, For these types of preachers who just have this knack for, well, narcissistic eisegesis. That's probably the best way of putting it. And uh, to help us out today, we're going to be listening to a portion of a message, not the whole thing, from Kevin Gerald of the Champion Center out there in Tacoma, Washington. Now, the thing about Kevin Gerald is uh, I've referred to him as the uh, cheap Joel Osteen knockoff. He and Keith Kraft are kind of cut from the same cloth, and it's kind of like the, um, how do I put it? If um, Joel Osteen was a Rolex, these guys are, um, well, Taiwanese knockoffs of of Rolexes. You you get what I'm saying. So here's Kevin Gerald to, well, to wax eloquent regarding the word of faith heresy, which Keith Craft and Joel Osteen both have in common, or they all have in common together. Um, and his, his talk about verbal prisons. Here we go. On the topic of verbal prisons. Verbal prisons. In the beginning, God spoke the world into existence. With his words, God created the earth and the land and the sea and everything in it. For seven days... God moved through the creative process. Uh, actually, it was six days. He rested on the seventh. With intentional words. Mm, so he moved through the creative process with intentional words. Now, notice he's not reading a biblical text. Okay. Nope. See, when what God can do, you can do better, apparently. Words that gave direction mm-hmm. to the process of creation direction to the process i thought those were the means by which he created god said let there be light and there was light you may not realize that words have creative power Mm -hmm. and just because god who is by nature omnipotent omnipresent you you, you get what i'm saying here um, this is this is an all-powerful God. Um, he has the ability to speak things into creation, and they must, you know, whatever he speaks must come true. It's not that the words have power. It's that God has power. Notice where he put the emphasis, that words have creative power. Wrong. It's God who has the creative power, and his speaking is the means by which he 
created the world. Not just for God, but we are created in God's image. And our words also have creative power. Mm -hmm. Really? So our words, just like God's, have creative power. So if I was in a dark room, uh, I wouldn't have to find a light switch. All I would have to say is, let there be light, and a light would appear? Wrong. Okay. By the way, this is the foundation of the word of faith heresy, that the power is in our words. Again, the emphasis is the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. When God created the heavens and the earth, it doesn't say His words created the heavens and the and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth, and he, heavens and the earth, and He spoke them into existence. Not that words have power in and of themselves, but that God has power. That when He speaks, things happen for good and for evil to tear down. You can tear down with your words or we can build up with our words. We can discourage other people with our words or we can encourage other people with our words. Yeah, and discouraging and encouraging truly can happen via our words. No doubt about that. But that's on a completely different level than the ability to create ex nihilo something out of nothing via words. Words have the power to make a mountain or to move a mountain. Uh, again, it's not words. Okay, let's go back to this this analogy here regarding encouraging and discouraging. Okay. Who is doing the encouraging when you say something kind to build somebody up? Is it your words that are doing it, or is it you who are doing it through your words? You see? It's you, not the words, but you who's speaking the words. Proverbs 18 and 21 says this. It says, the tongue, the tongue has the power of Life, how about we all say it together? Everybody say life Life. and death. Come on, both locations. Yeah, and again, Proverbs 18.21, this is one of the major proof texts of those in the uh, Word of Faith heresy, is basically this is taken out of context, but understand something about the Proverbs. The Proverbs are not necessarily promises, they're truisms. There's a little bit of a difference uh, regarding Proverbs and promises, okay? These are things that, you know, kind of in general, if you apply the Proverbs to your life, you'll see better outcomes. And by the way, the primary thing about the Proverbs is they kind of give us a blueprint of what sanctified wisdom looks like and as it's played out in the life of a Christian. But you can't even begin to understand the Proverbs until you are brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And that fear of God begins with repentant faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But, um, yeah, but I want to point something else out here that you also can't see that I can see on my uh, video screen. And that is is that Kevin Gerald has twisted God's word by adding a funky punctuation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is kind of important. Here's what it says from the ESV from Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, comma, 
Yeah, that's right, comma, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Okay. Now, Kevin Gerald, his quoting of Proverbs 18.21 says this, the tongue has the power of life and death, period. Uh-huh. He's engaging in Bible twisting via bad punctuation, if you would. And so he's basically trying to say, Proverbs 18.21 is saying what I've been saying. It's just like Genesis. God created the heavens and the earth uh, because words have creative power. And see, Proverbs 18.21 says the tongue has the power of life and death, period. See, it's the same thing. No, it's not. Um, let's, uh, let's take a look at what's going on here. In this passage, in fact, I'm I'm looking at uh, the New Bible Commentary, University Press's New Bible Commentary, and it notes that Proverbs chapter 18 verses 9 through 21 are a section. They work together, and here's what it says: This section speaks of the strength of a fortified city, and of two things which have parallel strength. One is wealth. Um, and But verse 10 already affirmed that God protects the righteous, qualifying the comment on the presumed impregnable strength of wealth. It also supports a different understanding of pride, honor, and humility. And 15 links with the, that assessment of pride, and verse 9 hints at another form of strength exercised even by the inactive. The human spirit can sustain itself, but not forever. God's protective strength provides an answer. The second thing, which is as strong as a fortified city, is the sense of personal injury that can sometimes come between brothers. And verse 18 offers down-to-earth tip for solving such disputes between strong opponents and is the only other reference to casting the lot in Proverbs. And verse 18 may also uh, be taken for granted that God is sovereign when lots are cast. You're thinking, okay, so Proverbs 18 verses 9 through 21 all kind of work together according to one commentary. So let's read them and see what it says. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his imagination. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. If one gives an answer before he hears... It is, his, it is to his folly and his shame. A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. The one who states his case first seems right until another comes and examines him. The lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Uh-huh. So you see what's kind of going on here. It, this is not some some statement that your words have creative power to create a positive or a negative future for yourself. Proverbs 18.21, taken out of context by the word of faith heresy, is a Bible twist and a teaching of false doctrine. But let's continue. Say it again. The tongue has the power of life and death. So today I want to talk about how words create limits or liberty in our life and how words 
hold us back or move us forward. We're using words do like, like, is this magic? You know, you say the magic spell and your words have that kind of power. This is ridiculous. Illustration today um, as what I'm calling a verbal prison. And I want to acknowledge, first of all, the the guys around here who whenever, you know, I I ask for some kind of prop, um, they, they do it and they do it so well. Um, I really was like not knowing what I was going to get when I asked for, you know, build me a prison, get me a, you know, a box that I can get in and out of. And I walk in here on Saturday night service and it's like, like, this is no joke. Like, and and they, they do an awesome, let's give, let's give our teams a great big hand. They do, they do an awesome job. So a verbal prison, if you're taking notes, write this down. A verbal prison is words that hold us back from the bigger, the better, the progress. Words that are holding you back. Words. Wow. those It's like magic, man. Yeah. Yeah, I I really have this really amazing present and my future would really be bright, but... Somebody said some words, and and now those words are really holding me back. You know, I'm totally powerless against them. I I, I need to learn a good counter curse or something to you know so my words can overcome those other words, so that uh, I can finally have the the bigger, the better, and and progress to the increase that God has for me. And the increase that God has. For our lives. Words that hold us back from the bigger the better, the progress and the increase that God has for our lives. How many of you believe God has a great plan for our lives? How many of you believe that? Come on, if you believe the Bible, the Bible says. Okay, now listen to what he's going to say. Yes, the Bible says what it is that he's about to say, but the way he's using it, it doesn't mean the way he's making it mean. Does that make sense? Listen to the words. Oh, the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. God has a great plan. None of us. Yeah, that's uh, <clears throat> Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. out of context. Yeah, that's out of context. That is not a general promise for Christians that God has a plan for you and a future and a hope and all that kind of stuff. If you're talking, if by what you mean by that is that things are going to really be great for you in the here and the now. Yeah. Proverbs twenty nine eleven was a specific promise given in the context of an of a letter, an epistle written by the prophet Jeremiah, you know, via the dictation of God Himself, that was sent to the exiles in Babylon. Mm-hmm. That's right. So the specific promise mentioned there only applies to you if you happen to be alive at the time of the sacking of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar and you were marched off from Jerusalem to Babylon. Any of you out there, are you survivors of that event? Yeah, I know some of you are old, but I don't think any of you are that old. See, yeah, and if you're thinking, really, that's, yeah, go read it in context. None of us are accidents. Like, none of us, you were not a surprise when you showed up on the planet. You were not- now we're really getting into the Narsa Jesus here. <laughs> Look at how important you are. 
surprise to God. You might have been a surprise to mom and dad, but you were not a surprise to God. The Bible says that all the days of our life, they were ordained. They were written in a book like before we even live one of those days. So none of us are an accident. Um, All of us are here by divine design and God has a plan for our lives, right? And and so what we want to really talk about is how our words can either limit us from that plan or liberate us to live out God's great plan. Really, our words are going to be the determining factor as to whether or not the things that God has foreordained for us to do, the good works that he's for, our words are going to become the determining factor as to whether or not we do those or not. That's ridiculous, okay? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. In fact, let me pull up, pull this up in my Bible. I want to point something out here. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. It says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. All of the action is being done by God. God is the one who has saved us by grace, through faith. It's not a result of our works. No one can boast, and we are his workmanship. If we're God's workmanship in salvation and grace and faith and even the good works that you know he's foreordained for us to do are all given to us by God, how can our words be the determining factor as to whether or not we're going to do those good works or not? Huh? They can't. Doesn't make any sense. This is nonsense. This basically makes you God. Uh-huh. And that's one of the problems with the word of faith heresy underneath, deep, hidden under a rock in the Word of Faith heresy, and all of the Word of Faith heretics believe this, you are a god. You are a little god. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, in the past, you've, you know, people have, you know, in the Word of Faith heresy have openly taught this, but they've learned to kind of sneak this and hide it and not speak about it so openly as they have in the past. But the Word of Faith heresy says that you are a little God. Ke- you know, Kevin Copeland teaches this. Joel Osteen believes this because everything in his theology points to this. Kevin Gerald still believes this. And the idea then is, is that it's not just that your words create things. There's a reason why, because you are a little deity. That's the that's kind of the missing premise in all of this. And that's why they say, oh, your words have this power, because you are of the divine kind. Matthew 12, 37 uh, will, will really bring this together in the words of Jesus. He says it like this. He says, for by your words... By the way, again, this is Jesus. I want you to notice it's Jesus talking and not just me. Because this is really kind of cute and cool and all that, this illustration. But actually, it comes straight out of a word picture that Jesus spoke himself. He says, by your words, you will be acquitted. And by your words, you will be condemned. Yeah, now let's take a look at the context of Matthew chapter 12. Because remember, our three rules for sound biblical exegesis are context, context, and context. 
Okay. So in order to know what's going on here, is G- we're going to ask the question, is Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 37, teaching that our words have the ability to create our future or, or, or to basically unleash us to do what God has ordained for us to do in the books that he's written before the foundation of the earth, or they have the ability to keep you from, from experiencing those good works. Yeah, see, let's take a look at what's going on here. And so we'll take a look at, we'll begin at Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Here's what it says. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and he saw. And all the people were amazed, and they said, Can this be the son of David? But... When the Pharisees heard it, they said, Oh, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons, that this man casts out demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom that is divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will be able to stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit." You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? Either make the tree good, you know, uh, the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fr- uh, fruit bad, and the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Here he's specifically, in this context, talking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees who had just said that Jesus was performing miracles, literally had healed the demoniac, cast the demon out, the guy could speak and he could see, and, um, and, and they attribute that to Satan himself, to Beelzebub, right? And so Jesus is basically saying, you're saying these things because out of the abundance of the heart, your mouth is speaking. Now, if, you, if we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, we're saved. Why? Because our mouth is speaking what's coming out of our heart. Our heart believes that Jesus is God in human flesh and that he died for our sins and he is our Lord and Savior. And when our heart believes that, our mouth confesses that. They deny that Jesus is the Savior. They deny that he is God in human flesh. And their hearts are wicked. And out of the wickedness of their hearts, their mouth is speaking. That's what Jesus is referring to here. So what Kevin Gerald, so far every verse that he's cited, 
he's twisted majorly in order to teach the word of faith heresy. So Jesus is comparing the power of words to the power of a judicial process. Uh, No, he's not. He's saying that your words will condemn you because your words tell you what's in your heart. To be condemned for a crime meant that you would be and means that you will be incarcerated. If you are condemned for a crime, you will be put into prison, right? The jury has power to condemn us to confinement in prison. To be acquitted by a jury, you could even be put here for a short time until you have your trial, but to be acquitted by a jury would be to be liberated. A jury can incarcerate or liberate. Jesus is saying, your words are like a jury. No, he's not. He's saying your words reveal what's in your heart. Your words can incarcerate you, hold you back, hold you hostage. Yeah, no, what Jesus is talking about here as far as people giving, notice that verse 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Jesus is not saying that our words have the ability to hold us back from experiencing the good life here. He's saying that our words betray what's in our heart, and on the day of judgment, They will be judged. Your heart will be judged by the words that you spoke. You either believe Jesus, you confess him to be Lord and Savior, or you deny him and your words confess him to be Satan or not the Son of God or anything. You get what I'm saying here. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Kevin Gerald is a flat-out Word of Faith heretic, and what he's teaching here is a major twisting, twisting of God's Word. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, we're going to go to Elevation Church and listen to a sermon from one of their campus pastors. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. 
No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean midichlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Hey! Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. We're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. We'll have to save the Keith Craft Think We Do update until tomorrow. So stay tuned. We will get to it. But let's do this right. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon uh, comes to us via Elevation Church, Charlotte, North Carolina. But we will not be hearing Stephen Furtick preach, although he will introduce the campus pastor who's doing the preaching. The name of the sermon series, by the way, is Your Verse. And the sermon is entitled, It's Yours for the Taking. And it's delivered by University Campus Pastor Larry Bride of uh, Elevation Church, and as you're about to find out, Larry is quite the student of Stephen Furtick, and uh, as his master, he's uh, he has dutifully learned the technique of reading himself into the Bible and twisting God's Word and engaging in what we call here, uh, well, Narsa-Jesus, yeah, self-love read into the Bible. So let me go ahead and kill the music, and without any further ado, here's uh, Stephen Furtick to introduce Larry Bry. As he delivers this message that we will be critiquing from the Your Verse sermon series, it's yours for the taking. Here we go. Church, let me tell you that Your Verse series is about to go to another level this weekend. You get to hear from one of my favorite people in the world, Larry Bry. He's a father of four. He's a man of God. He's a man of passion. 
I love Larry and Janet. He's also an original core team member, one of the first people that started the church with us. Can't say enough awesome things about him. And he's our university campus director, our most hyperactive campus. I love that location so much. What he doesn't know is I'm going to ask him a series of questions today that he hasn't heard about yet. So we'll start very simply. How long have you been on Elevation Church staff? Uh, since the beginning, since 2006. Very first staff member. Yes, sir. Yeah. What's your favorite sermon series of all the sermon series in the church? Wow. Uh, that is a hard one. The first sun stands still. Yeah. Yeah. Good one. Love that one. Would you rather be Larry Bry or Larry the Cable Guy? Larry Bry. Get it in. Larry Bry or Larry King Live? Larry Bry. Larry Bry or Larry Bird? Larry Bird. Larry Bird or Harry Truman? <laughs> Larry Bird. Larry Bird or Larry the Cucumber? <laughs> For my daughter, Larry the Cucumber. Larry the Cucumber or Larry Curly and Mo? Uh, Larry Curly and Mo. Larry Bry or Briar's Ice Cream? Briar's Ice Cream. Briar. Larry Bry or Larry Bray? Larry Bry. Larry Bry or Larry Bray? Larry Bry. When's the last time you were nervous? Uh, last time I had to preach for you. Yeah. On the stage, and it was my weekend. What'd you preach about? Uh, labels and lids. Labels and lids. That's a good one. If you could meet anyone, living or dead, who would you meet? Don't say Jesus. Uh, uh, Ronald Reagan. Yeah, don't say Jesus because they don't preach him there. Uh, wow, this is a weird way to start a sermon, don't you think? Yeah, the job of a pastor is to preach the word. Um, we're learning a lot about Larry Bray. Um, not so much about Jesus. Don't worry, we'll, we won't learn anything about Jesus. I'm pretty sure of it. Uh, <clears throat> we continue. Ronald Reagan. What would you name the autobiography of your life? Run at full speed. Run at full speed. Yeah. Running down a dream. Just running after it. Running after it. What was the last movie that made you cry? Uh, the Lego movie. You cried at the Lego movie. I did. I cried at the <laughs> Lego think. movie. This what is part? my kind of movie. Uh, it's uh, I don't want to give any spoilers out okay. there, but it's towards the end. Did you cry multiple times? Twice. How many times <laughs> did you cry a week? A week? Probably five or six. Five or six times a week. Yeah. So close to once a day. Pretty much. Hey, can you think of a reason that a table would have a leg sawed off of it? No, I did that in first grade. I sawed a leg off a table, but other than that, I don't know why we would do that. You sawed a leg off a table in first grade? First, I got in so much trouble with the teacher, yeah. What were all the other kids doing? They were sleeping. I snuck out during the uh, nap time, sawed a leg off a table. Does this bring any childhood memories back to your... Yeah, I was locked in a freezer as a kid. Huh? <laughs> you were locked in a freezer? Yeah, my older brothers. By talk, your older brothers? Yeah, they'd talk me into getting in a freezer and they'd lock me in it. Like Briar's ice cream? Briar, like Briar's ice cream. Natural ice cream. Okay. <laughs> for how long? I don't, it seemed like forever. It was it was cold. I do remember it that. Was. <laughs> it was freezing. Do you like deep freezers today? Uh, kind of an aversion for them today. Yeah. Kind of scare me. Now, what do you love most about the weekends at Elevation Church? The sermons, hearing the word of God every week. Oh. <laughs> really? <clears throat> yeah. They. Sorry, Larry. Um, have you actually ever taken the time to read what uh, you know God's word in context while listening to a Stephen Furtick sermon? You're, you'll, when you do that, you'll find that Stephen Furtick isn't actually rightly handling God's Word. So you're not really actually learning God's Word when you're listening to Stephen Furtick. I love it. <laughs> and what's your favorite thing about um, the journey that you've been on since we started? Uh, seeing how much God has changed me through the process and how much the gospel has changed my life. Yeah. 
How about that new baby? How can the gospel change your life if you don't really even hear it at Elevation? Hmm? She's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, she Amazing. is growing every day. She's beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. What's your verse? What are you preaching about today? First Samuel 21 9 is what Give I'm preaching. First Samuel 21 9. Let's take a look at it here and see if we can kind of get a preview of what's going on in this narcissistic eisegesis of a sermon that with first Samuel 21. Verse 9. Okay, here's the verse out of context. The priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none none but that here. There is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. So there it is. Out of context. Um... The name of the sermon, again, it's yours for the taking. I can imagine what they're going to do with this here. I mean, what do they do there at Elevation Church? They read themselves into the biblical text. So apparently, uh, 1 Samuel 21, verse 9, just based upon the history of Elevation Church, if I had to guess what Larry Bry, the uh, campus pastor, is going to do there, is he's probably going to tell us that God's got some promise for you, and it's yours for the taking. That would be my guess, right? And how much do you want to bet that's what's going to happen? But uh, that's just kind of a preview. If you want to have your Bible open to 1 Samuel 21, uh, we'll see if we can fix this along the way. I don't know if I can, but we'll try our best. Let's continue. The priest replied, uh, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the Valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no sword here but that one. Come on. David said... There's none like it. None like it. Give it to me. Give it to me. Well, give it to him, LB. Go preach the word. Thank you, sir. Come on, give it up for LB. Get on your feet and show him some love. LB Skinner. Team LB in the house. In the house. You know, what's kind of weird is now that I'm a pastor, I should note this. Um, When I get up to preach, you know, I, I, I go to the pulpit you know, open up God's word. Um, they don't do that. <laughs> um, in the in the liturgy, everyone stands for the hearing of the gospel. They're not standing for me. Uh, and then when I get ready to preach, everyone's sitting down again, and no one's clapping. To you. All right, here's Pastor Rosebro. That's just great. In fact, if they did that, I would probably put them under discipline. But I'm glad that they dump. Weird. This is just weird. Um no reverence for the word of God, and uh, uh, all of the uh, emphasis is on the wrong syllable. It's on the person rather than on Christ, who is to be preached on Sundays. How are we doing today, Blakeney? It is great seeing all of you here today. What a great welcome. I'd love that every week. But you guys can have a seat, and it is a privilege and honor to kick off this new series here today, Your Verse, I love this idea about taking one scripture, a life verse, and using it to set the the course of your life, to help make all the tough decisions. A life verse to set the course of your life. That's ridiculous. That's preposterous and absurd. All scripture is God-breathed. We are to be in the word of God. And by the way, when the original authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned the biblical documents, there were no verse numbers, not even one. 
That's right. The verse numbers were added later as an apparatus in order to help us as Christians quickly get to particular portions of Scripture or sentences in Scripture. But this idea of having a life verse, bad idea. Really, really bad idea, at least the way he's preaching it, for sure. To give directions in moment of chaos, and that's what I hope to speak on today. The, the verse that God gave me, you heard me use it in the rolling. And act- God gave you a verse. No, God gave you a Bible, not a verse. Actually, that was a verse that came into my wife and I, into our lives, when we were going through one of the most difficult seasons in our life. We um, actually went through a miscarriage, and some of you know the, 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 the pain of that situation. And in the midst of all that is when I heard Pastor Stephen on a Thursday morning preach about this verse. And he talked about uh, the priest said, there's a sword here, and if you want it, take it. And in that moment when he said, if you want it, take it, I felt God speak to me, I'm here. My presence is here. My promises are... There's a sword here. If you want it, take it. See, because, there you go. See, because I read a verse out of context from 1 Samuel that said there's a sword here. If you want it, take it. That's God saying, hey, you out there in the 21st century who's listening to Stephen Furtick, there's a, God's offering you something right there too. No, he's not. That text doesn't teach that at all. In fact, let's take a look at the passage real quick so we can see what's going on. Okay, so David is on the run. In the chapters preceding this, um, Saul has had it in for David, um, You know, throwing spears at him, having to be calmed down while, Saul, while David would basically sing psalms to him and and uh, and things like that and eventually it got to the point where he, David knew the, the the handwriting's on the wall Saul has it in for him now keep in mind David is the anointed but not yet reigning king of Israel yeah messianic themes going on there big time the anointed not yet reigning king of Israel Saul has it in for him and now David has fled. He's a fugitive. He's a bona fide fugitive on the run because he know that he knows that Saul wants him dead. So as you know, David is on the run, here's what happens in chapter 21, verse 1. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let not let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and which I have charged you. Notice David here isn't exactly speaking the truth, is he? I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have been brought 
For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, Well, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like it, give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Yeah, so this is what's going on in this narrative here. And there's no promise for you or for me in this text. None. There's, you know, what what application is there for us to apply to our lives in this? Nothing more than to believe that God is the one who rescued David. That's pretty much the application, to believe these things and to believe that God delivered David from Saul's hands. But um, there's, you know, just because David was offered a sword doesn't mean you're being offered a sword or you're being offered anything by reading this text. We continue. They're here, and if you want them, you can take them. And it brought me so much comfort in that moment. And the Bible also says that we want to comfort others with the comfort that we've been given. So I'm excited to share my life first with you today because I believe some people in this room need to be comforted today. I believe some people in this room need to be reminded that God hasn't abandoned you. Some of you need to be reminded that God's promises are still available for you today. And when pa- Yeah, if you're going to comfort people, you need to comfort them with the real promises that really do apply to all of us. Uh, this, the text that you claim is your life verse has no promise for any of us and is incapable of comforting anybody for any reason, really, if, at least the way you're using it. Um, if you want to comfort people as a pastor, preach the gospel. Tell them what Christ has done for them. Tell them that Christ has bled and died for them and that he will never leave them nor forsake them. Things like that, rather than some weird out-of-context verse from a a narrative regarding David that you're narcissizing because you've learned from your evil master, uh, Stephen Furtick, very well how to read yourself into the biblical texts. Pastor Stephen spoke that to me. It just shook my soul and it brought me back to the place of remembering who God is and what he's promised to my life. And and if you don't know this, Pastor Stephen has this amazing ability where it seems like he's following me around all week, reading your mail, and he knows exactly what you need to hear. And he just happens to preach a sermon that's like, oh my gosh, I'm the only person in the room. And that's what happened for me on that Thursday. As he spoke a specific word from God's heart to me to remind me. Is it me or is it just totally weird that he's describing Stephen Furtick in kind of like omnipresent, omniscient terms? You see, that's the problem. Who's the real Messiah at, uh, at Elevation Church? It's not Jesus. It's Pastor Stephen. Of God's promises. So, um, Pastor Stephen, if you're watching, uh, on behalf of everybody here at our Blakeney location, I just want to say thank you for faithfully preaching God's word so that we can be reminded of God's promise. Yeah, you're clapping for nothing because he doesn't faithfully handle God's word. He narcissizes it. He twists it. He mangles it. Promises each and every week. And, and today we're going to talk about the promises of God. We're going to talk about God's promises. And God's promises are drastically different than people's promises. Because we make promises to people all the time. And parents, we're always making promises to our kids. I've got four kids. I'm always making promises to them. Promises to motivate them, to manipulate them, to do something. 
to get him to stop asking that same question over and over and over and over again. And it's funny, I came across an article, and, and you, might, you might find this humorous. It's the top five promises parents should never give to their kids. Now, parents, maybe you've said these, or maybe your parents said these to you once upon a time, but you might enjoy this. First one, I promise that we can go to Disneyland next year for your birthday. <laughs> next year. This is a lie. I promise you won't feel a thing. <laughs> I promise... We'll play catch in the backyard after I send all these important emails. I know, I got stung by that one too, dads. I promise if you just sit quietly and listen, maybe you can have a sleepover next Friday. And the last one, this is my favorite. I promise this will hurt me more than it will hurt you. Flat out lie. And we've trained our kids to ask us, do you promise? Because I give my son a promise. He's like, dad, do you really promise? Do you really, really, really promise? Because I've trained my son to know that just because I promise something doesn't always mean that I intend to keep it. It is so easy to give words, but it's really hard to keep our promises. And we can take what we see happen with people and project it onto God. But God is drastically different. He's not just a promise giver. He's a promise keeper. He's not just a promise maker. He is the ultimate promise keeper. And I'm so glad that God is different than us as humans. And in verse, or in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, you'll find it on the screen. It says this of God. It says, God is not human that he should lie. Not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? That's the kind of God that we serve. Because with people, when we make a promise to each other, if you look in the original language. Now I'll point this out. What he said so far, this is accurate. God does not lie and his promises are sure. The question is, What's the promise offered to us in his life verse from 1 Samuel 21, 9? There isn't one. Which what that means, it means to make a pact or a covenant or an agreement. But when you look at the word there, promise in Numbers chapter 23 there, the word promise literally translates back to his word. So what he's saying is because I give you my word, it is by default a promise. If you look up in God's dictionary, the word promise, it has his picture next to it and says anything he's ever said. Because if God says it, you can bank on it being a promise. Because God isn't just a promise giver, he is a promise keeper. Every word he's ever given is a promise that he will fulfill. And I love it. I love this. This this is the definition of God's promise we're going to use today. What he's written in his word and spoken to our heart. What he's written in his word. And spoken to our heart? Uh-huh. So we're going to go with direct revelation on top of God's word. Twin streams. Hmm. No. Go only with what God has written in his word, properly exegeted. Don't think that God's speaking to your heart. That is a dangerous, dangerous thing to be thinking. And he's spoken to our heart. And there's a couple problems with this. One of the problems is I can oftentimes get my preferences confused with God's promises. Now, God gives me a promise. Yeah, see, the thing is, if you just go with God's word, sola scriptura, you never have to worry about, well, is this God's word speaking to me or not? You know, for instance, if you think that God's speaking to your heart, you always have that nagging suspicion. Well, maybe it's not God to speak. Maybe that's just me. I mean, how do I know, you know? Uh, When you're reading the Bible, 
You never have to worry. You know that you're reading the word of God. The question is, have I rightly understood it? Promise to know the number of hairs on my head. He does not promise that I will have a full head of hair. It does not come with a lifetime warranty. But I can also have a problem with my promises because, because it, it, I, can, I can look at my circumstances and let that define God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises. Just because I see it not happening in my life, I can sometimes believe that God has forgotten me and he's not going to fulfill his promise. God will fulfill every promise he's ever given. So if you feel like God has spoken to your heart that he's, it's a promise that you're going to get that job, but you haven't got the job. What you've always got to do is you've always got to take what you believe he's spoken to your heart and line it up with his word. And if they line up, you can believe it. You can stand. Yeah, God doesn't promise to give you a job, at least you know, a specific one. This is terrible. And strong in that promise. But what I can't get confused is I can't always, it doesn't always work out like I want. I can't get committed to the process, but I believe he will ultimately fulfill his promise. It may not look like what I want, but he will ultimately fulfill his promises. And we're going to look at God's promises today. One verse of scripture from the life of David. And David was a man who had high... One verse of scripture from the life of David. One verse. Did anyone else see a problem there? What if I were to tell you? I, I really want to give you something inspirational from one sentence from the autobiography of, I don't know, let's say Ronald Reagan. I don't know if he's written an autobiography. You get what I'm saying? How, how much do you think that's really going to benefit you? you? You see what I'm saying here? Highs, and he had very low lows, and throughout the entire process, he hung strong to the promises of God. And that same God who did that in our life is the same God who's going to do it in our life. And so with this scripture today of 1 Samuel 21, 9, where, where we're going to go today, before that, we look at how that story was all set up. It's because David was a guy at a young age who was anointed to be king of Israel. He goes on to fight this giant named Goliath and kill him. And then he starts working for the king, King Saul at the time. And he starts winning all these military victories and all these military battles. So much so that they start writing kind of top 40 hits about him. He's this, he's this teenage celebrity. And he's rising in fame so fast that Saul starts to become jealous. Jealous to the point where he wants to kill him. Now, I don't know about if you're, if you're in a place where somebody's trying to kill you, but David was. David literally had somebody trying to kill him. And in an opportune moment, Saul, the king, grabs a spear, throws it at him. David gets out of the way, and he runs to the priest. And that's where we pick up the verse we're going to jump into today. You'll find it up on... <laughs> There's all the context, and now we're just going to... We'll pick up the verse, the verse, the verse. On the screen, First Samuel 21, 9. And I'd like us to read this verse together to remind us of the promises that God has made each and every one of us today. So let's read this together. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Say that again. Give it to me. That's where we're going to go today. <laughs> Uh, yeah, as if somehow there's an offer for you to take a sword. There isn't. And in the sermon, there's two simple points we're going to look at, but also there's two, two responses. Because anytime God's word goes forth, it brings a response. So we're going to look at two simple points from it, but then also two responses that God would want from us. The first point, number one, is you can run to it, but you can't run from it. You can run to it, but you can't 
run from it. Because David first gets the sword when he's fighting the battle with Goliath. That happens just four chapters earlier in this, in this, in first Samuel in chapter 17. The story's laid out. David is standing in front of this giant named Goliath, nine foot tall. He's a military soldier. David is a little farmer boy with acne. All he has is a sling and a couple rocks. And he makes one of the most bombastic claims in all of scripture. And he says, you come against me with sword and spear, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Today he will give you into my hands and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head. Pretty crazy claim because all he has got is acne and a rock. <laughs> but he's faithfully running towards the... Is it me or do, do the people at Elevation Church sound like they're providing a laugh track? Giant. And he puts a rock in Goliath's head, knocks him to the ground, and he runs over, grabs the sword, picks it up, and cuts off Goliath's head. And he starts walking around like he just won a stuffed animal at the South Carolina Fair. He was running towards it. He knew it was God's battle, and he found a weapon waiting for him there. Four chapters later. See, just like you know, Goliath, David, you know, when you, you got a Goliath, you just got to run towards the battle. And you'll find the weapon you need there when you get yeah, that's not a promise of scripture, is it? Not at all. He feels like God has forgotten him and he's running for his life and he goes to the priest and gets what's waiting for him there. The same sword. David was drastically different people in both of those places. Have you ever felt like that? Sometimes you're like strong for God and other times you feel like he's left you and you're running for your life. And the great thing about the God that we serve is his promises are available, whether you're running towards him or whether you're running away from him, because it's not. Mm -hmm. And where does the Bible teach this? Not based upon your performance. It is based upon a promise from God who will ultimately fulfill all of his promises. And that's the kind of. Yeah, again, I agree. God will fulfill his promises. What are his promises again? God that we serve. And the, the difference between those two stories is David's awareness of God's presence. Because God's presence changes everything. And in, in, in Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10, David writes this. He writes this verse in a place of isolation. But in that place of isolation, he makes this amazing observation. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. What David is saying is wherever I go, there you are. One theologian described God like this. He said, he is a circle without a border whose center is everywhere. And God's promises are always available in his presence. Okay, yeah. Uh, what are the promises of 1 Samuel 21.9 again? One of the greatest promises give, God gives you is his presence. And if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are never outside of his presence. That is a promise that God gives us. And the reason this verse is so powerful for me is as my wife and I were in the midst of of that miscarriage so powerful this verse is powerful for you what is being promised in this verse again we're in a place where we're going to pick up the name for this child deciding if it's going to be a boy or a girl what color to do the room and how they're going to change the world and what color eyes they're going to have but then to go from that place to not bringing the child home from the hospital made me run from god and we got pregnant about 10 weeks after that 
I didn't want to get pregnant. I wasn't ready emotionally to get pregnant. God had other plans. But even when we found that next pregnancy, I couldn't get excited for the first three months. I couldn't pray for that child. I couldn't get excited about the child. Why? Because I was so focused on the disappointment of the loss. I didn't celebrate the life. And some of you might be able to relate to that today. And it's in that place of darkness where feeling like God left me, like he abandoned me. Pastor Stephen spoke this word that says, if you want it, take it. And I became... Pastor Stephen spoke the word, if you want it, take it. Again, the priest speaking to David and offering him Goliath's sword is not anything that applies to your life or to mine. I'm aware of God's presence in that moment and changed everything. That is a verse that I've gone to every single day since I heard it. Because it reminds me that wherever I am, God's with me. And because he is with me, his, promise, his presence is in me, and his promises are always available. The turning point of this whole story is when David became aware of God's presence. Are you aware of God's presence in this place today? You might be running from the enemy, but you need to know that the presence of God is with you. Because wherever you are, he is there. And the key to coming back to God is becoming aware of his presence. Can you become aware of God's presence today? Point number two. Where in 1 Samuel does David become aware of God's presence when the sword is being given to him um, by this priest? That ain't in that passage at all. You're sticking it in there. Point number two. You may not see it, but you can always find it. You may not see it, but you can always find it. David is going to the priest. And isn't it like that, that when we get in trouble, we get to the bottom, we then come to church? Um, David wasn't going to church. He was passing through town where the tabernacle was. He wasn't going to church. I'm glad some of you are in church today because when you get to the bottom, you realize God is there and he is all you need because he is a good God. He uses all things and I'm glad you're here today. Because God's got a promise that he wants to remind you of. The promise of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. Is that the promise you're talking about? And David, he runs to the priest and he says, hey, do you got anything? Well, what he didn't know is that God had already had something there waiting for him. It was wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. The ephod is like the priestly garment, the robe he wears. And it was sitting behind it like in the corner of the garage. But David walked in and he couldn't see it. God's promises can be hard to see sometimes. And what we've got to know is that sometimes with God's promises, it's a little bit like hide and go seek. Um, Just because the sword was wrapped in a cloth doesn't mean that God hides promises. This isn't some kind of Easter egg hunt text. And have you ever played hide and go seek with a little child? I've got a two and a half year old daughter. And she came to me several months ago. She says, Daddy, hide and seek. Hide and seek. I'm like, great, let's play a game of hide and seek. And so I have actually a picture of her up on the screen here. This is a picture of my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter named Carson. Yes, very eclectic dresser, uh, a different, uh, different color gloves and the Disney dress and the Disney hat. And so she wants to play hide-and-go-seek. I'm like, great, let's play hide-and-go-seek. I'm like, ready, go. And here's the second picture. <laughs> she didn't go anywhere. She just sat right there and put her hands right in front of her eyes. And I'm at her dad. I'm like right in front of her going, where's Carson? Where are you? Where'd you go? She goes, oh, there you are. Now I see you. But we do the same thing. We do the same thing with God. God, you're right in front of me. I know your promises are there, but I can't see you. We take the circumstances of life, put them right in front of our eyes. We block out the presence of God and his promises. We take this doctor's report that we got last week and we put it right in front. Again, what? 
promises are you talking about? front of her. I said, God, did you leave me? Why is this going on? Why is this happening to me? Parents, your kids are running buck wild and you think they're going to go off the deep end. And you put, you put it right in front of you. I say, have I failed God? What did I do as a parent? How did I screw it up? But what your heavenly father is doing is he's saying he's right in front of you. I'm right there. I haven't gone anywhere. Something is obstructing your view of me because you may not always see it, but you can always find it. And that's what happened with David here in this whole story. I love it because I picture this scene with David. He's going to the high priest. He's shuffling his feet. He feels like God's abandoned him. He feels like he must have done something wrong. He must be. Uh, The text doesn't say that he feels like God abandoned him. You're putting that into the text. You're You're psychologizing David in a way in which the text doesn't psychologize him. Being punished by God because I see you being faithful to everybody else, but it's not happening to me. And he goes to the priest. He says, hey, do you have anything here? And the priest goes, well, I got one sword. You might have heard of it before. It actually came from a guy that you know very well. It's a guy named Goliath. And in that moment, he took the thing that was obstructing his view of God and it opened up. And he started to remember God's past faithfulness. Uh, Where does the text say that he remembered God's past faithfulness? It doesn't say that. And as I picture the scene, David, he lifts his head and he closes his eyes and he gets a smile of satisfaction as he remembers God's past faithfulness. And he starts to relive the scene with Goliath and how God was faithful and provided him the sword. And he might even remember before that when he was out tending his father's sheep and a bear or a lion would come along and God would protect him. He'd kill those things with his bare hands, but he never... Have you passed elementary school courses on reading comprehension? It's not... These things are not found in 1 Samuel 21 got hurt and he might even remember all the way back if he stood there long enough remembering God's past faithfulness when he was anointed king and as Samuel the prophet put the oil on his head it dripped down his head and he could still feel it running and he might even be able to smell the scent of the oil because you want to start claiming the promises of God for your future Uh, again there was no flashback mentioned in 1 Samuel 21 Start remembering God's past faithfulness in your life. It changed everything. When David became aware of God's past faithfulness, he started to remember his promises. Uh, Again, this is not found in 1 Samuel 21 anywhere in the text. Can you remember God's past faithfulness in your life? Can you remember where God provided? I actually want to give you an opportunity right now. Yeah, it's called the cross. That's where God provided. Now, would you just close your eyes? Just take a second, close your eyes. And I want you to think back and remember God's past faithfulness. Maybe you're... So some kind of guided meditation here to remember some weird, ubiquitous concept of God's faithfulness rather than a sure and certain objective promise where God truly is faithful and actually promising us something. Instead, you're leading people to close their eyes and think back. and Just like David did and. 1 Samuel 21, except for David didn't do this in 1 Samuel 21 at all. You're worried today. Can you remember God's past faithfulness when he gave you a peace that you didn't think was possible? Are your finances in a wreck and you have so much fear? Can you remember God's past faithfulness when you saw him provide and make something out of nothing? If you're alone today, can you remember God's past faithfulness when you felt his presence and comfort your weary soul? 
is you begin finding God's promises when you remember what he's already done. You can open your eyes. Yeah, you like what he's already done for us on the cross. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. That's what you're referring to, right? And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says this. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. Because there is a fundamental difference between faith and hope. Fundamental difference between the two. Hope means I've actually never seen it done before, but I hope it will happen. Hope. I hope it will happen. I hope that it will happen. But we don't have a hope in God. we got a faith in God. Fundamentally different. Faith is this. Faith is looking back and seeing what God has done in the past and knowing that he will do it in the present and believing that he will always accomplish it in his future because we have a faith. Yeah, and notice you're pointing people to their experiences rather than the objective word of God. This is a formula for subjective disaster. Yeah, when all of this breaks down, what are they going to hang on to? We need to be pointing people to God's word and the promises there and what Christ has done in real human history. Not what you think God might or might not have done to help you in the past. It's not a good place to look at all. We continue. Faith in our God because we have a Bible filled with his promises and stories about he has provided every single time to every person who has ever lived. God has never failed to fulfill one promise in all of humanity. You think he's going to start with you? You have. Yeah, I agree. God fulfills his promises. Again, which promise is being made to me in uh, 1 Samuel 21? have to have a faith in God today. you got to look in your past, remember what he has done, and believe that he will do it in your future. We have a faith in God today because of what he's done. And in a few moments we have left, we want to look at our two responses. Because whenever the gospel is preached, God wants a response to it. The scripture says it will never return. You're not preaching the gospel. To him void. It will accomplish what he sends it forth to do. The first response is this. It's God's response to us. It is, if you want it, take it. What? If you want it, take it. Yeah, repeating it doesn't make it any more coherent. That's God's response to us all the time. If you want it, take it. Because God's promises don't come with an expiration date. They don't come with conditions. Now, I'm a little funky. Yeah, again, what is being promised to me in 1 Samuel 21, 9 again? About some kind of expiration date, like milk. If milk has an expiration date that went bad yesterday, I'm throwing it out. I'm not going to smell it. I just trust the date on the thing that says it knows what it's doing. God's promises don't come with an expiration date. I think God's promises are probably a little more like Chick-fil-A. I think Chick-fil-A is God's chosen restaurant. I do. I think you could make up a coupon on a napkin with a crayon with your own coupon and turn it in. They'd redeem it there. Why? Because they, they don't, nothing goes bad at Chick-fil-A. Nothing expires there. That's a little more like God's promises. God's promises don't come with expiration dates. And I'm so thankful because God's promises are not dependent upon your performance. They're dependent upon a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. Yeah, can you tell me what he's promised me again? Second Corinthians. One twenty says this. Second Corinthians one twenty says this. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. They are Yeah, again, what are those promises again? They are yes in Christ. 
And what God is telling you in this moment, it's yours for the taking. If you're looking for a title for today's sermon, that's it. It's yours for the taking. Uh, What is? What do you need today? What you need to understand in God's Bible, there's over 3,000 promises that he's given to us that you can claim. And Yeah, it makes it sound like a menu. You know, you go to the restaurant. We're sitting at God's restaurant. There's 3,000 promises. Just pick pick a few and God, your waiter will come out and give them to you. And when we open up God's word, we start to find them. And when we write them down, it becomes a life verse. We can start to put them in our lives and believe them. But what do you need today? Because God's promises are available to you. And if you need rest, here's a promise that he gives you out of Exodus 33, 14. It says, my, pres- my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God's promises. Exodus, uh, that would be God speaking to the children of Israel. Is that a general promise to Christians that God will give us rest here and now? Is that he will bring us healing because Psalm 30 verse 2 says, Oh Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. Uh, have healed me. Notice past tense. That's not a promise that God will heal me now. God's promise is to give us resources. And in Philippians 4.19 it says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. They're all available today in Christ Jesus. It's you. Yeah, so Jesus is offering you a 3,000 list long menu of promises. Just pick the ones you need and, you know, if you want it, take it. Yours for the taking. That is God's response to you. If you. Yeah, this is not the gospel and nor is this any way to read or handle or apply God's word. If you feel like you're outside of God's will, if you feel like you've run to him today, all of his promises are available to you because they don't come with the next person. That's God's response to us. That's security. That's faith. Knowing that it's always available. But the second response, this is our response to God. It is this, give it to me. Give it to me. Because it's a choice. See, a promise can't be earned, but it can be embraced. And an unclaimed promise is a forfeited blessing. An unclaimed promise is a forfeited blessing because... Uh, what verse says that an unclaimed promise is a forfeited blessing? It, you have to have a restocking fee, you know, for those promises that, you, that go unclaimed. Because give it to me is an action. It requires us to do something. If you feel like God has told you that you're going to have a wife one day, get out of your mom's basement. Get a job. Put on some deodorant, some product in your hair. I mean, show up and be a greeter here at Elevation Blakeney because there's lots of pretty girls walking around that are single. High-pitched amen for any of the single ladies here? Yeah, they're all right here. Waiting for one woman just raised her hands. And... But give it to me requires an action because a present is only enjoyed after it's opened. A sword only becomes a weapon when I put it in my hand. Other than that, it is just a paperweight. And God's word only starts to become powerful when it's applied in our lives. And what again? What what exactly am I supposed to be doing here? How does this application play out again? I'm a little confused. I want to do is I want to give you a couple practical things for you to say. Give it to me. A couple practical things. Number one is make a list of God's past faithfulness. You already did in the worship experience. You already started to make a mental note of all of those things. Why don't you make a list today of everything you've seen God do in your life before your head hits the pillow tonight. And each day you add to that list. Because you know what I've found out about myself? I am most forgetful about God's promises. Because what happens to me is I fail to remember what he's done in my past. And I'm most faithful when I'm least forgetful. I am most faithful 
when I'm least forgetful. That's a f- so make a list, uh, you know, of all the things you think God's done, and you know, just that way you can be more faithful. Really. First thing, write down God's promises. Second thing you could do today, a practical thing to help you, is to get a life verse. What do you need? You heard me lift off a couple of... Again, I don't need a life verse. I have the Bible, and that's what I'm supposed to be studying. ...of them already today. Maybe one of those spoke to your heart and needs to become your life verse today. There's over 3,000 others available in God's Word today. During this series, take advantage of it. Hear from all the other sermons. Maybe the verse you heard today, maybe something you heard today reminds you that is the life verse you need to have. But start getting a life verse. Put it in your car. Put it on your bathroom mirror. Put it on your workstation. Put it. Yeah, have it tattooed on your wrist. I, you know wherever you can see it because it's always reminding you because what you got to do if what you're seeing around you isn't living up with what god spoke to you you've just got to close your eyes and remember his past faithfulness yeah so if god's you know isn't making good on his promises you got to remember then he'll say oh yeah they're remembering so now i should follow through Uh uh-huh to those promises even when you can't see it happening around you last thing you could do is david knew that he needed help he knew that he couldn't do this all by himself So he went to the priest. He went to the church. Some of you need to follow David's example today because you're running through life alone. David didn't go to a church service. He wasn't there to worship and praise and hear a sermon. God didn't call you to live this thing alone. He called you to do it in community. Called you to do it with other people. Take advantage. Do what? Advantage of of Elevation Church and our e-groups, our small groups. After this worship experience, go out to the orange tent and say, I really need to get in an e-group. We got something for everybody. But give it to me means you have to do something. And David knew that give it to me meant he had to pick the sword back up and head back out to fight another fight. Tell your neighbor, give it to me. Uh, David was actually looking for weaponry and provisions. Say, give it to me. See, see we, want, we want God's promises to take us out of the battle. But God's promises keep, give us the strength to keep fighting. Uh huh. We want God to take away the battle, get us out of it. But God's promises give us the strength to keep fighting where we're at today. And single mom, I know you're tired. I know you feel like you can't keep doing it, but God gives you a promise. He says that no weapon formed against you will prosper and the gates of hell will never prevail against you. I know you're tired. I know you feel like you've been cut, but God gives you a promise. He doesn't say that the weapon wouldn't be formed against you. He just says it won't win, but keep fighting. I have no idea what he's talking about now. This is just nonsense. And I know your dad said he'd never walk out on you. And you're broken. But God gives you a promise. He says he'll never leave you. And he'll never forsake you. And I will be a father to the fatherless. And I will be closer than a brother. So keep fighting. And I know you feel like you can't forgive yourself today for what you've done in your past. And you feel like you've disqualified your future because of it. But God gives you a promise. He says, though your sins were red as crimson, I will make them white as snow and what the enemy has destroyed. Yeah, that's something very close to the gospel. But you're saying that in the context of God, somehow me disqualifying myself from God's vision for my future. Huh? God will restore. But what we've got to do is we've got to say, give it. To me. Yeah, that's what you got to tell God to give it to you. Yeah. Give it 
to me. It is an action. It requires us to do something. I know you're tired. I know you're weary, but tell God, give it to me and he'll give you the strength. I know you're scared. I know you feel like you can't go on another day, but tell God right now, give it to me. Would, would you stand to your feet right now? And what I want you to do in this moment is I want you to take an opportunity to tell God, give it to me. Say, give it to me. Yes. Say it like you believe it. Say, give it to me. Yes. Thanks for uh-huh. Well, there you go. <laughs> I just don't even know what that was. That wasn't biblical Christian preaching, nor does that have anything to do with what Christian sanctification looks like or what it really means to ask God to uh, supply your needs. Wow. <laughs> I just think I'm going to go beat my head against a brick wall. What did you think? I'd love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me. Regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>